I would like to start by acknowledging that we meet on the land of the Wajak Noongar people. I pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. The Noongar people have cared for this land since ancient times and continue to do so. I would like to thank Ross Bollas Hiroshi for inviting me to give this talk. I would also like to acknowledge um, that it will soon be the 8th of December, which is known as Rohatsu or Buddha's Enlightenment Day. The natural world plays a prominent role in the story of the Buddha's awakening. On that occasion, Shakyamuni Buddha sat in meditation beneath the Bodhi tree. He had his realization on seeing the morning star. After his realization, when Mara challenged him, Shakyamuni put his hand to the earth, which bore witness to his enlightenment. The way that he established is a way that is in communion with the natural world. It is a way of respect and care for all beings. The title of tonight's talk is Extinction, Rebellion and the Dharma. Firstly, I will talk about extinction and then I will talk about rebellion. Throughout, I will draw on the words of various Dharma teachers to explore how the teachings of Zen might help us to live in these challenging times. Uh, I also just want to say that um, these are my own views. I'm speaking of my, my own opinions and views in this talk. The climate and ecological crises are upon us. Humans have caused irreversible harm to our planet. The world is currently one degree warmer than in pre-industrial times. Climate change has made fires, floods, droughts and hurricanes all more likely and more severe when they occur. According to a July report by the United Nations, on average one climate crisis related disaster occurs each week. We don't hear about a lot of them as many occur in developing countries. These disasters often cause death and mass suffering. We are currently on track for temperature rises of between 2.4 and 4.3 degrees by the end of this century and more after that. The repercussions of this are likely to be horrific. Mass death by heat stress, mass forced migration, increased disease, increased food and water shortages, massive sea level rise and adverse economic consequences all seem likely. And actually these aren't future problems. All of these things are already occurring to some degree. But experts predict these problems will become much, much worse. I recently read Darj Mail's book, The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. The book makes it strikingly clear that climate change is something that has already happened. Jamal visits places in the world on the front lines of the climate crisis. He visits St Paul's Island in Alaska, where he witnesses the collapse of food webs 
and the disruption of traditional indigenous cultural practices. He also describes destructive forest fires in the Amazon, flooding in Miami, and bleached coral, coral reefs in Queensland, as well as other impacts. It is a harrowing, harrowing read. If you want to understand how climate change is affecting people and ecosystems right now, I recommend it. A month ago, 11,000 scientists from around the world signed a report that said, we declare clearly and unequivocally that planet Earth is facing a climate emergency. An immense increase of scale in endeavours to conserve our biosphere is needed to avoid untold suffering due to the climate crisis. A few weeks ago, the United Nations released a report on global carbon emissions. It summed up our current state of affairs with the word bleak. It went on to say, countries collectively failed to stop the growth in global greenhouse gas emissions, meaning that deeper and faster cuts are now required. There is no sign of greenhouse gas emissions peaking in the next few years. Just last week, an article in the journal Nature reported that we may have already passed key climate tipping points earlier than expected. This means that we could be entering a period where certain effects of climate change become unstoppable. The report called the risk an existential threat to humanity and warned starkly, we are in a state of planetary emergency. As well as a climate crisis, we are also in a biodiversity crisis. It is not just humans who are suffering. The current extinction rate is tens to hundreds times the higher than it has been over the last 10 million years. Humans have caused an 82% decline in the global biomass of wild mammals. Natural ecosystems have lost half of their total area. 25% of all plant and animal species are at risk of extinction. Scientists believe the Earth's sixth mass extinction event may be underway. The loss in biodiversity will have far-reaching consequences for all of nature, including humanity. A month ago, the Buddhist scholar and activist Joanna Macy gave a talk on the importance of looking clearly at ourselves and our world in the face of these worsening crises. She compared the challenges we are collectively going through to a bardo, a liminal state that we pass through between birth and death, according to the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism. She uses Tibetan symbolism to explain our circumstances. She says, In the East is Akshobhya Buddha, the Buddha of mirror wisdom, who holds a mirror to us in our world. For us to survive, for us to pass through, we have to not turn away from the mirror. Look into it and you see a lot of beautiful things. Students marching, wise teachers and some of the great wisdom traditions stepping forward. In the centre, however, we see a political economy doomed by its own rapacity. We see global corporate capitalism or what you can call an industrial growth society. It's devouring the world and it's on automatic. It's gotten to a point where it can't stop. The earth is being assaulted, extracted, poisoned, contaminated. This is us coming home to our true nature and our true identity. 
We can't stop climate change to go back to what we were. We're in collapse now, but it doesn't have to be a total collapse. Our practice teaches us to be with what is current, to allow what arises, even when it is difficult. What is current now, what is arising in our world, is the destruction of life because of human greed, hatred and ignorance. It is not easy to behold this. But Macy tells us that recognising this fact is us coming home to our true nature and our true identity. And that is the purpose of our practice. I'm sure many of us have experienced how Buddhist practice can help us to allow what is. It is difficult to face what is going on, but surely we must. Our ecosystems, our societies and our lives are at risk. Where will this situation lead? How bad will it get for nature, for us and for future generations? Will the human species join many other species as victims of the sixth mass extinction? We don't know. We are facing an uncertain future. It is scary, but uncertain futures are also the only kind that we have ever faced. Encountering this uncertainty, I'm grateful to have found the Zen path, which sees our natural state of not knowing, not as a hindrance, but as a virtue. Zen teachings can help us understand the underlying causes of our environmental crises. In his book Eco-Dharma, David Loy outlines how he believes that just as a sense of separation causes suffering for the individual, our collective separation from the biosphere causes mass suffering. Our alienation from the natural world distorts our relationship with our environment, causing us to abuse it. Loy says, Look around yourself. Even if you are in a windowless room, everything you see, whether human-made or not, is derived from nature. Wood from trees, plastic from oil, metal from ores, concrete from cement and sand and gravel. And let's not forget to include our own bodies and clothes. The environment is not only an environment, that is, not just the place where we happen to be located. Rather, the biosphere is the ground from which and within which we arise. We are not in nature, we are nature. The earth is not only our home, it is our mother. Before we make it into a resource, it is the source. It is our sense of disconnection that Loy believes is the root cause of the climate crisis. Bearing witness to climate and ecological breakdown is difficult stuff. And then, once we bear witness, we must ask ourselves, what comes next? How do we deal with it? What do we do? I believe that one good response is rebellion. To challenge the system that has caused such disaster. To join with others who share our concerns and make it clear that we have had enough of denial, inaction and disconnection. And that's why I am a member of Extinction Rebellion 
I think that Extinction Rebellion is the best bet we have for stopping the worst potential impacts of the climate emergency. We need to force our governments to act. Scientists suggest we still have a chance to avoid the worst of the climate crisis if globally we act to change our current trajectory. So what is Extinction Rebellion? The Extinction Rebellion Statement of Principles and Values states, Extinction Rebellion is an international movement that uses non-violent civil disobedience in an attempt to halt mass extinction and minimise the risk of social collapse. XR aims to promote a fundamental change in our political and economic system to one that maximises well-being and minimises harm. Extinction Rebellion believes it is necessary to cause disruption, break rules and take risks in order to bring about change. Those with power, money and influence have too much vested interest in business as usual. They cannot be won round by arguments, no matter how reasonable or well-crafted. According to XR, disruption is required. It seems that our democracy is broken and governments have failed us. Our economic system is exploitative and unjust. The social contract has been broken and so to rebel has become a morally justifiable act. Extinction Rebellion aims to mobilise 3.5% of the population to actively participate in protest. In Perth, this means about 70,000 people, or as many as it takes to fill Perth Stadium. Erica Chenoweth, a political scientist at Harvard University, has done research that suggests that 3.5% of a population actively participating in non-violent protest will ensure serious political change. Given that around 10% of Australians vote for the Greens at each election, this goal does not seem out of reach. At the heart of Extinction Rebellion is non-violence. The movement follows in the footsteps of the suffragettes, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. by using non-violent direct action as a means of resistance and sparking change. Non-violence can be a powerful tool. The environmentalist Bill McKibben believes that non-violence is one of the signal inventions of our time. Perhaps, if we are lucky, the innovation for which historians will most revere the 20th century. Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh puts non-violence within a Buddhist framework when he says, Non-violence and compassion are the foundations of a peace movement. If you don't have enough peace and understanding and loving-kindness within yourself, your actions will not truly be for peace. Everyone knows that peace has to begin with oneself, but not many people know how to do it. Surely, Buddhist practice can help us to develop this peace within. As well as the principle of non-violence, another of Extinction Rebellion's principles is that we must avoid blaming and shaming. The movement believes that we live in a toxic system, but no one individual is to blame. I believe this principle is part of what gives XR its power. The principle applies to those within Extinction Rebellion to how we, we treat them, as well as how we treat those outside of the movement. There is little judgement in XR. 
In WA, a number of Extinction Rebellion members work in the fossil fuel industries. That is only natural, given our economy's reliance on these industries. They are welcomed wholeheartedly as part of the rebellion. This principle of not blaming and shaming reminds me of our sixth grave precept. I take up the way of not speaking of the faults of others. Like the precept, the principle can be complex and difficult to put into practice, but provides good guidance. I think it aligns with Zen practice completely. David Loy tells us that from a Buddhist perspective, the basic problem is not rich and powerful bad people, but institutionalised structures of collective greed, aggression and delusion that need to be transformed. Extinction Rebellion is based on civil disobedience, but I think it's important to point out that to be a part of Extinction Rebellion, you do not have to be willing to risk arrest. Some may choose to and show their commitment to fighting climate injustice by blocking traffic or committing other arrestable actions. However, there are many ways to engage in and support direct action and civil disobedience that don't involve personally risking arrest. Members of Extinction Rebellion make soups, sew banners, offer emotional support to each other, sing in choirs, put on street art performances, organise meetings, garden, marshal protests and give presentations. Whatever skill an individual can offer can be put to good use. So what does Extinction Rebellion want? In Australia, Extinction Rebellion has three demands. The first of these demands is tell the truth. Government must tell the truth by declaring a climate and ecological emergency, working with other institutions to communicate the urgency for change. I think the truth is a difficult thing to face when it comes to climate change. It's a topic so big, so confronting and so devastating that I find it difficult to hold in my mind. When I read about climate change, I sometimes notice myself speeding up, beginning to rush and not really taking information in. I have to remind myself to slow down and be open. As a society, I think we also have trouble seeing the truth clearly. Governments have an obligation to be honest and to help us realise the severity of our situation. Our government and media's refusal to communicate the truth about climate change enables our collective delusion, our alienation from the biosphere. In April, following 11 days of Extinction Rebellion protests in London, the UK government told the truth and declared a climate emergency. In Australia, many local governments have also made a declaration of climate emergency. The second demand of Extinction Rebellion is, act now. Government must act now to halt biodiversity loss and reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2025. Net zero by 2025 is an ambitious target, but we should act as quickly as possible to have the best chance of avoiding catastrophe. A massive World War II style mobilisation is necessary. This would require fundamental changes to the way our society functions. What might this kind of transition look like? Well, I'm not an expert, 
but from what I have read, it seems we would need to rapidly phase out fossil fuels and build massive amounts of renewable energy infrastructure. We would also need to consider how we can increase efforts to draw down carbon already in the atmosphere, including through reforestation and rewilding. In the short term, at least, we would need to reduce aviation, shipping and haulage to almost none, and reduce our overall energy usage. There would be sacrifices involved. A rapid transition like this might sound unrealistic, but it seems like it's technologically and economically possible and worth aiming for. We have become so good at imagining dystopian scenarios, but it is difficult for us to, to picture a pathway to a better world. A change like this would help us to reconnect with our homes and our communities. Imagine a world where we learn to love the places we live rather than hopping across the globe in airplanes all the time seeking new scenery. Imagine a world where we don't rely on electronics for so much of our leisure, where sport, art and music are not things that most of us just passively consume, but participatory activities that we join in together. It will be important to ensure that any rapid transition to renewable energies is just. We must care for workers in the fossil fuel industries, and ensure they maintain their dignity and livelihoods. Perhaps a universal basic income is one means that could be useful in ensuring a fair transition. Radical change is needed, and it may sound unrealistic, but surely it beats the alternative. The third demand of Extinction Rebellion is that we must move beyond politics. Government must create and be led by the decisions of a citizens' assembly on climate and ecological justice. A citizens' assembly is a group of ordinary citizens, selected randomly using demographic quotas to represent the population. They consider key issues and go through a process of listening, learning, deliberating and deciding. They make recommendations that shape government policies. Citizens' assemblies are a form of deliberative democracy that could help us move beyond the frustrating polarisation of politics as usual. In Ireland, citizens' assemblies have successfully broken political deadlock on various contentious issues, including abortion. In 2010, Julia Gillard proposed a Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change in Australia. However, it did not proceed because of opposition within and outside of the Labor Party. So those are the three demands in Australia. In the United States, Extinction Rebellion has added a fourth demand. It states, We demand a just transition that prioritises the most vulnerable people in Indigenous sovereignty establishes reparations and remediation led by and for black people, indigenous people, people of colour and poor communities for years of environmental injustice, establishes legal rights for ecosystems to thrive and regenerate in perpetuity and repairs the effects of ongoing ecocide to prevent extinction of human and all species in order to maintain a livable, just planet for all. There's a lot there uh, it's interesting to consider. 
I believe it is important that the climate justice movement, of which Extinction Rebellion is a part, a part prioritise the views, knowledge, rights and sovereignty of Indigenous peoples. And I believe that this is something that Extinction Rebellion in WA has been doing well so far. At Extinction Rebellion events that I've been to, Noongar elders and leaders have spoken with great passion on the climate and ecological emergencies. They have invited and encouraged environmental activists to join them in caring for country. In November, after a Stopadani rally in the CBD, Extinction Rebellion members walked up to Parliament House to join members of the Indigenous community in a vigil for Kumanjai Walker, the 19-year-old Indigenous man recently shot dead by police in the Northern Territory. And it felt good to stand in solidarity with the Indigenous community. I believe we must continue to learn from and support First Nations people and do this more. Their knowledge presents a possible way out of crisis. Phil McNamara recently emailed me a powerful article by Dr Dave Koshin, an elder of the Anishinaabe people, a First Nations group from Canada. It was very inspiring and um, I want to read one paragraph or a couple of paragraphs from that article. He said, We all need to make our way to the land to recover and to heal the human spirit. We have to feel nature, feel the sun, feel the wind, feel the breeze, feel the rain, and listen to the voice of nature through the sounds of the animals, sounds of the birds, to listen to messages that come from the winds, to hug the trees, to lay on the land, to feel the love of the earth. We need to listen to the waters and the rapids and the falls, to see the beauty of the land, to see the stars twinkling in the night sky, to see, feel the power of the full moon, to, create the sun, to, to greet the sun at sunrise in gratitude for the blessing of life's gifts, to touch the land with your bare feet. The spirit in the land will guide us, teach us, and ultimately give us our survival. I think that it's, it, it's beautiful poetry and it connects with the spirit of our Zen practice and particularly with how we practice in the Zen group of WA when we sit on country with Michael Wright. Extinction Rebellion is a decentralised, people-powered movement. Anyone who agrees, who agrees with the values, principles and demands of Extinction Rebellion can act in its name. Extinction Rebellion is made up of various groups who are empowered to self-manage. Power is shared and leadership is distributed. Recently, I and other members of this Sangha, including Richard, Ross, Trish and Fiona, have been involved in establishing an Extinction Rebellion affinity group called Contemplative Rebels. Contemplative Rebels is a group for anyone who wishes to rebel through contemplative practice such as meditation and prayer. Individuals from different faiths and backgrounds have joined together to consider how silence, stillness and spiritual practice can be used to protest. We wish to bring our practice or practices into public spaces to disrupt business as usual 
bear witness to the climate and ecological emergencies and build community and healing. On the 14th of this month, Contemplative Rebels will be holding a mass meditation action in the CBD. All are welcome to join us. We will occupy public space for half an hour in meditation. I can provide further details to anyone who is interested. And if you are interested in joining or learning more about Extinction Rebellion, you should attend an induction session. These are held weekly, on Saturday afternoons in North Perth and on Sunday afternoons in Fremantle. More information can be found online or you can ask me any questions about how you can become involved. So, will Extinction Rebellion and the broader climate justice movement succeed? Who knows? I spoke earlier about the emphasis that Zen puts on not knowing. I think that embracing not knowing can help us avoid getting too tangled up in questions of hope and despair. These can take up a lot of energy and it can be easy to kind of wildly swing between the two. David Loy says that we should act without attachment to results. I'm a great fan of the American short story writer and poet Raymond Carver. In his essay on writing, which is a, a brilliant essay, Carver discusses how he's inspired by the Danish writer, Isaac Dinesen. He tells us that Isaac Dinesen said that she wrote a little every day without hope and without despair. And Carver goes on to say, someday I'll put those words on a three by five card and tape it to the wall beside my desk. I first read that years ago, but it's always it's stuck, it's stuck in my mind since then, that idea of writing a little every day without hope and without despair. And I think sometimes about how we can take that principle, Dinesen's principle, and apply it to other parts of our life, our lives, aside from writing. Could we, for instance, serve every day without hope and without despair? Act every day without hope and without despair? Practice every day without hope and without despair. Being involved in Extinction Rebellion has allowed me to meet interesting people, hear creative ideas and be inspired. It has also allowed me to explore how my Zen practice can support and be supported by activism. Thich Nhat Hanh coined the term engaged Buddhism to describe Buddhism that addresses social political and economic issues of injustice. However, when asked in an interview what the term meant, he said, Engaged Buddhism is just Buddhism. When bombs begin to fall on people, you cannot stay in the meditation hall all of the time. Meditation is about the awareness of what is going on, not only in your body and in your feelings, but all around you. David Loy also speaks of the importance of engagement. He says, Engagement in the world is how our personal awakening blossoms and contemplative practices such as meditation ground our activism, transforming it into a spiritual path. I'm grateful to teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh, David Loy and Joanna Macy for providing guidance and inspiration in these matters.
I'm also deeply grateful to Ross Bollard Roshi and Mary Ridwin Roshi, who speak and act with wisdom and compassion on environmental issues. Without my Zen practice and Ross and Mary's teaching, I don't think I'd have the capacity to engage with what is going on. And in particular, Mary's talks and workshops in the Zen Intensive earlier this year gave me the push to begin taking these issues more seriously. And I'm grateful for that. Thank you for listening to me tonight. And I'd be very interested to hear your views on what I've discussed. Thank you.